Jesus, in his day on earth, was a rising star. His fame spread almost immediately as he starts preaching and doing miraculous things. We don't often, we, we talk about and understand that his popularity grew, but sometimes we don't think of him like a celebrity. But I want you to imagine the scenes of uh, whatever generation you're in, whether it's uh, the Beatles or Justin Bieber, you know that with the picture I'm giving you, when swarms of people hear that someone's in town and they absolutely go nuts. Well, this is what we see start to happen as Jesus' popularity becomes greater and greater as he is, again, proclaiming these profound things and doing these incredible, miraculous things. But this becomes a problem because Jesus' mission is not to become a celebrity. That's not why he came to earth. He knows better than anyone that if people form around a spectacle, they remain lost. People in Jesus' day, just like people today, don't need to be entertained. They don't need a cause to get behind. People need forgiveness. And this is the all-important topic that our passage this morning teaches us. Forgiveness. We find ourselves in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus is back in Capernaum, his home base. Mark actually records in the beginning of our passage that he was at home. Now, many figure that Jesus' home in Capernaum was where he was last time he was in Capernaum, which was Simon Peter's house, as we read in chapter 1. Uh, but here in chapter 2, he comes back into town. Remember, he was driven out because literally people were coming to him on all sides, he was being swarmed as his fame grew and his popularity grew. So he was driven out into the wilderness. People were still finding him. But obviously the dust had settled a little bit. And so he comes back into Capernaum. But we see almost immediately word spreads and then he is swarmed again. We see uh, him in his home and people are packed in like sardines trying to get to Jesus. And we might imagine that Jesus would be annoyed. Right? Imagine you were a celebrity and we can, uh, we say kind of, oh, woe is me, these celebrities who have trouble going to buy groceries without getting swarmed or whatever. But imagine the challenges of that. And what Jesus is doing here, he's coming back into town, he gets swarmed, and we would imagine that he would be annoyed, but he does exactly what he came out to do, exactly what he said his mission is from the beginning. We're going to see in our passage that he preaches the word to them. That's what his mission is. He continues to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. He continues to call people to repent and believe the gospel, the good news of forgiveness, the good news of salvation. Now, would you stand with me as I read from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and we hear this good news of forgiveness. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening... They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, 
He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their minds, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. As we read in the middle of our passage, the religious leaders ask a really important question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus demonstrates that he can. This is a bold and significant claim that Jesus makes. He is no ordinary man. He is the one who not only teaches with authority, but one who has the authority to forgive sins. And so our big idea from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, is exactly that. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, something that only God can do. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, something that only God can do. Can do. Now we'll consider that as we go, but let's look through the whole story. It's a beautiful narrative. It's a well-known story. I think every children's Bible puts this story in because it really is an amazing story. But there's more here than just, you know, interesting facts or maybe a unique narrative. The first observation I want to make is about these friends these friends of this paralytic who give us a beautiful example of what it means to have faith and what it means to have faith that works. So that's our first point, have faith that works. Right away, we see this contrast. We see this massive crowd gathering around Jesus. However big this house was, it likely wasn't huge, but people are packed in right to the door. There's just no way in. And we see right away, implicitly, that being a part of a crowd around Jesus is not the same as being a disciple of Jesus. The crowd stands and watches, but disciples commit themselves to action. They have faith. And consistently throughout God's word, we see that faith is not simply wishful thinking. That's a lot of times what we think about it when we say, you know, have faith. It means just like hope for the best. That's not what faith is. Faith, according to the Bible, is accompanied with action. It's rooted in something. And we can understand this, right? Because unfortunately, talk is cheap. And so a good measuring stick of faith is the action that comes with it. Think about marriage. It's one thing to say, you know what? Yeah, I'll commit to you. It's another thing to put some stake in the game and say formally and publicly, I promise I covenant to you in this relationship. And then it needs to be lived out. Right? This is the same as our relationships in the church. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'll commit to you. I'll, I'll associate with you. It's another thing to 
say formally and publicly, yeah, I promise, I covenant to you in this relationship. We understand the difference between words and actions. Well, this is what these friends are doing. They're not just making uh, some empty commitment to their friend with this head knowledge or understanding that Jesus could maybe heal or something. They really believe. And this is lived out as uh, these guys act. This is faith that works. And we see that as their, their faith really comes from a motivation from who Jesus is. They truly believe that Jesus can do something about this paralyzed man. Or else they obviously wouldn't go to the lengths that they're about to go to to, to do this. If they thought, oh man, he's just, you know, uh, charlatan. He's just, uh, you know, a guy trying to get a crowd. They're not going to do what they did here. They obviously are motivated by who Jesus is. They truly believe that Jesus can do something for their friend. And then secondarily, they're motivated by love for their friend. We don't know this relationship dynamic. Were they family members? Maybe they were childhood friends. Could this man not walk because he was injured? Or was this an illness? Was he paralyzed for his whole life? Or was this a new development? However those questions might be answered, very obviously, these friends believed that Jesus, first of all, was willing and could do something about it. He had the power to do it. And they also loved their friend. And we see this because they're persistent. I like this, this persistence of these friends. Uh, not only do they try to get them to Jesus, right? They obviously believe Jesus can do something and say, we're going to go. But when they run up to adversity, they problem solve. They're persistent. There's lessons here, right? We could, we could imagine the situation. They're carrying their buddy up to the door. They can't get through. They're saying, please, our friend needs help. And everyone's saying, yeah, we all need help, buddy. Uh, we all got to get to Jesus. And so what do they do? They find another way. They're persistent. And second, they're creative. Up to the roof they go. Homes in those times had outdoor staircases and uh, flat roofs. These roofs were made uh, first with large beams that stretched across, and then they had a crisscrossing pattern of just smaller and smaller uh, branches and sticks to create a web that then they would put uh, mud and clay on, packed together to make a roof. Now, first, there's dedication even in just getting their friend up there. It's hard carrying people around. And stairs are a whole nother level. We have multiple emergency services workers in the room today. If you want to ask them about carrying people up and down stairs, you ask them. Stairs complicate things a lot. These guys would have made really good firefighters. They're creative. They're saying, we're willing to put the work in. We're willing to go up the stairs, bring this guy up there. Second, we don't know exactly how much effort went into opening up this roof. We can know archaeologically how these buildings were made, but... But it's hard to know if this was like a one-minute thing or a five-minute thing. But I think it's safe to assume this is more than just like moving a stick and a leaf and all of a sudden a bed could fit through. There's some effort that goes into this, right? Imagine the scraping. Imagine the banging. Imagine the digging. Imagine being inside and all of a sudden dirt and sticks start falling down in on you and then light streams into the home and then at some point the opening's big enough that a bed starts lowering down and then there's a guy in the room. That's the scene, Right? Don't, don't let that fly over us. It's, it's chaotic. It doesn't need us to embellish it. 
And we might imagine Jesus, again, knowing what's been happening so far even in the narrative, that he's had to be driven out into the wilderness because he's become so famous. We might imagine him being incredibly annoyed at this point. Maybe he says, you know what, you guys can pack in as long as we're civil. And all of a sudden, the roof starts getting ripped open. And you could imagine him for a second saying, hold up, right? That's enough. You guys are crazy. Everyone out. Everyone out. We could imagine him reacting like that. But that's not at all what our passage tells us Jesus reacted like. What does he say when he saw this absurd scene in front of him? It says that he saw their faith. He saw their faith. Imagine him looking at this man who had just been lowered down. What's this man looking like? Is he embarrassed? He's obviously desperate. I don't imagine him putting up a fight on the way down. And so Jesus may be including him in this uh, seeing their faith. But imagine Jesus looking up at the sweaty faces of his buddies who maybe are looking through this hole in the roof. What does he see? He sees faith. And he sees faith that's not just a mystical belief. It's accompanied with action. This is faith that works. These guys are persistent. They go to extreme lengths to get their friend to Jesus. And these guys are creative. Can't get through the crowd. Can't get through the door. Okay, let's take the roof apart. Again, these guys would have made great firefighters. When you can't find a door, you make a door. When you can't find a window, you make a window. These guys take, take extreme and creative measures, even costly measures. Right? There's some unanswered questions in some of our minds, I'm sure. Who paid for this? Right? Who's going to clean this up? Who's going to fix this? This passage leaves those questions unanswered, but their extreme effort of bringing their friend to Jesus demonstrates their faith. And it had me thinking this week, do we go to extreme efforts to bring our friends to Jesus? Are we persistent? Are we willing to count the cost? Are we even willing to be creative? Maybe it's the cost. Maybe it's a financial cost. Maybe it's the cost of effort. Maybe it's the cost of your time. Maybe it's the cost of uh, your social standing. But are we willing to count the cost to bring our friends to Jesus? Maybe it's a lack of creativity. I've told this story before, but I think it's just such a great story. I have a friend named Tyrell. He's a pastor in Burlington, and he knows that as a pastor, it's easy to fall into the trap of just living a life surrounded by Christians and not actually uh, sharing the gospel with anyone. And so what he does, he gets creative. He goes and works at coffee shops, and he tapes a little sign on the back of his laptop that says, Hi, my name is Tyrell, and I'm a Christian. Have questions about spiritual matters? Have a seat. Let's talk. And you know what? People do. People sit down and talk to him about spiritual things. Still, he wanted to up the ante. He wanted to experiment a little bit more. And so what he did, even though he's a Baptist pastor who wouldn't ordinarily do this, he went and bought a clerical collar, right? He wanted to look the part. And now he would wear this clerical collar and go to the coffee shop. And you know what? It worked. People would come over to him and talk to him. People, uh, on one of the first days that he did this, someone who had just lost their spouse came and sat down and said, I, I need something Tyrell, I think, is a good example of being creative in bringing people to Jesus. Now, you don't have to do what Tyrell does. 
Unless you're an ordained minister, don't wear a clerical collar. Uh, be a fraud. Uh, but don't be afraid to think creative, like creatively about how you can bring people to Jesus. Because if we truly believe what Jesus can do, if we tru- truly believe what Jesus can do, and we truly love our friends, our faith should accompany by action. In the case of these friends, they were thinking, Jesus can heal this guy. That's what we're looking for. And we're willing to do whatever it takes to bring our friend to Jesus. And for us, we say with our mouths that Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. That salvation is found in no other name, but our action doesn't always accompany our words. And so I think the two motivators that these friends have ought to be our motivators as well. Faith in Jesus, what he can do, and love for our friends. Let those things spur you on in your evangelism, even this week. Have faith that works. This isn't the end of the story, though. I stopped in the middle of a sentence, really. Uh, We see this good example of faith, but we also see a really bad example of faith. And that's our second point this morning. Don't get defensive. So have faith that works and don't get defensive. So what does Jesus do? It says, and Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, even in only a few words, there's been a significant lead up here, right? Mark is, you know, the king of short sentences and, you know, punchy statements. But even already, you can feel the tension building up. This guy needs to be healed. And what Jesus does is something quite surprising. He doesn't say, like he'll say later, get up, walk. He doesn't heal him right away. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. I wonder what the look on the man's face was. What about the friends who just ripped open the roof? They're looking in and they're like, hold on, that's not what we asked for. Maybe the crowd around, what are they thinking? Was it shock? Was it disappointment? Was it confusion? Was it joy? Was it frustration? Well, we don't have to guess what some in the room were wondering because it tells us in verses 6 and 7. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, remember, the scribes were some of the religious elites. They were the theological PhDs of the day. They were highly educated. They were trained in the study and the application of Scripture. And Jesus' teaching has already been compared to the scribes, that Jesus is one who had authority, taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. But this is the first time that we run into them in the story And in every instance but one through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see that they're bad guys, okay? By nature of their job, they're not necessarily bad guys, but in the story of this, they're bad guys because they get defensive. They're opposed to Jesus. It says that they're questioning in their hearts. It's not like at this point, it's going to come later where there's some outward action, but here they're questioning in their hearts. Uh, They're not heckling or outwardly confronting Jesus. And interestingly, I think this is worth noting, they have really good doctrine. They ask a really good question. They just have terrible application. So what's their good doctrine? They ask a question, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a true and good question. But what they miss is they get the answer very wrong about who Jesus is. They think Jesus is just some ordinary man making extreme claims. They think that Jesus is blaspheming. To blaspheme is to dishonor, to insult God. 
In our culture, sadly, people dishonor God all the time, but this kind of blasphemy was punishable by death. And spoiler alert, as we work through the Gospel of Mark, this is the same claim, this is the same accusation they're going to lob at Jesus, which leads to his death. But these scribes see Jesus as a threat. They fail to see who Jesus truly is, that the sinless Son of God came to save his people. They don't have faith. Instead, they get defensive. Now, Jesus knows this. It's not just a hunch. He doesn't see them kind of you know, sitting over there in the corner. He knows what their hearts are feeling. And so uh, Mark writes that he knew in his spirit, it says in verse 8, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? And then Jesus asks a fascinating question, one of the greatest, I think, kind of mic drop moments that Jesus has in all the Gospels. He says in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, up, uh, rise, take up your bed, and walk. So he kind of paints them into a corner here, because what is the answer to that question? It's a tricky question, right? What's the answer? For people, for ordinary people, both are impossible. It would be impossible to forgive sins, and it would be impossible to say to this guy, get up. And on a spiritual level, we understand that Somehow, it would be more miraculous for him to forgive sins than to get this guy to stand up, which is equally impossible. But we, our minds kind of get twisted up and tied in a little knot as we think about this. Right? Because, but if you went to this person and said, you know what, get up, and you couldn't actually do it, I mean, you might just insult the guy, but we don't have the power to actually do it. And the scribes affirm that God can only forgive sins. So there's a bit of a, a twist happening here. But on one level, Jesus is saying kind of the opposite. He's saying... Uh, that since forgiveness is impossible to measure, it'd be a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven. Right? Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. But to say, get up, to a paralyzed man, is immediately discernible whether right, you're telling the truth or not. So this is sort of the situation that Jesus is saying. He's saying, Hey, what would be easier to do this, to just say your sins are forgiven or to actually tell this paralyzed guy, get up? And they're probably thinking, yeah, good luck, buddy. And so Jesus plainly tells them that that's exactly what he's about to do. And in that doing, he's going to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. Verses 10 through 12. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, this is the way Jesus frequently refers to himself, and there's a lot of theological undertones here of where the Son of Man is described in passages like Daniel 7, and we're going to see this kind of roll out more throughout the Gospel of Mark, because at this point, no one seems to question this. So he's saying, me, a man, the Son of Man, uh, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He does it. And I want you to imagine the scene. Really place yourself in the scene. Are the guys still looking through the hole in the roof? Are they watching or have they made their way down? And are they watching this kind of religious back and forth between Jesus and the scribes? What are the facial expressions of these scribes as they're sitting over there with their simmering uh, bitterness in the corner, and then all of a sudden Jesus calls them out. What about the crowd? And imagine this man who's paralyzed, 
Don't miss that, right? We don't miss how crazy this is. This guy's paralyzed. He had to be carried there. And then imagine the reaction to this healing. Have you seen those videos of the people who are colorblind that get those glasses? I don't understand the technology, but they get glasses and they see color for the first time. Or those people who get those cochlear implants, they've been deaf and now they hear for the first time. That look on their face, that mix of tears and a smile, you can't fake that. That's just an astonished response. I think, that's, I think that's what this guy would have been doing. I think that's probably what a lot of the faces in the room would have been reacting like. As you can wonder, are people gasping as this man feels his legs move for the first time, maybe ever, or at least in a long time, as this man stands up and obediently takes his bed and just walks out of there? Right? Are people gasping? Are they cheering? Is it dead silent? But he picks up his bed, his bed that he, I'm sure, had understood that he would never get up from on his own legs. And he gets up and walks out. Really imagine this scene. There's been faith in action. There's been these defensive scribes. And finally, we do see the response of everybody there. It says in verse 12, they are amazed and they glorify God. So that's our third point this morning. Be amazed and glorify God. People rightly praised God. Everyone there is seeing the fulfillment of what we heard in our call to worship this morning from Isaiah centuries earlier, that a day will come where the lame will leap like a deer. And then somehow, even more amazing is what we saw pointed to later in Isaiah 35, that God would make a way for the redeemed and the ransomed to dwell with him. This is what Jesus is pointing to as he's saying, your sins are forgiven. And this paralyzed man gets even more than he could have possibly imagined. Because as our minds may default to thinking that this man's biggest problem was his paralysis, without a doubt, his biggest problem was his sin. And this is true for all of us. Sin is our greatest enemy. You may be tempted to think that the biggest problem you face or will ever face is your marriage problems or your parenting Struggles, your work stresses, your financial burdens, your singleness, your failing health, your physical limitations, your lack of time. But just like this man, your greatest problem is your sin. And your greatest need is someone to take care of that sin. Because if this man was physically healed alone, as amazing and mind-boggling as that would be, his body would eventually fail him. He would get older. He might get injured. Lots of things could happen. What he needed was healing for his soul. And in Jesus, he found it. This forgiveness that Jesus grants him has eternal effects. Eternal effects for this man. As it does for us today. Each of us here need to ask three incredibly important questions. Kids, I want you to listen close. Okay, this, this matters very much. These are important. Christians, don't check out. Okay, we don't graduate from these questions. And if you're not a Christian and you're here today, if you've ignored everything I've said so far, don't ignore this part, okay? Three questions. Can my sins be forgiven? Who can forgive my sins? And how can my sins be forgiven? 
We might even be tempted to kind of mash those all together, but I think they're helpful to be distinct. Can my sins be forgiven? Who can forgive my sins? And how can my sins be forgiven? Question one, can my sins be forgiven? Can your sins be forgiven? Yes. This is the message of the Bible. All of us, all of humanity has sinned against God. And the entire story of the Bible is God making a way for his people to again dwell with him. Because we can't on our own merit do this. We simply can't measure up enough. We cannot be perfect. We have not been perfect. Even our best efforts fall abysmally short. And that is terrible news if the question, can my sins be forgiven, is no. But the best news in the world is that the the answer to the question is yes. Our sins can be forgiven. The biggest problem we all face can be taken care of. Christian, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that your sins can be forgiven? Because if you're anything like me, the reality of life is we then, we say that with our words, we, we say we believe that in our minds and in our hearts, but then we live our lives like we're trying to earn salvation. We think of the relational dynamic between us and God as him just this disappointed father waving his finger at us as we constantly are falling short, as we constantly can't measure up, and we still somehow seem like we're trying to earn our salvation. Friends, I want to remind you, or if you've never heard this before, tell you that forgiveness means forgiveness. Forgiven means forgiven. Sins gone, eliminated, cleared. If you are forgiven, there is therefore now no condemnation. Not some condemnation, not a little bit of condemnation. No condemnation. Can your sins be forgiven? Yes. Who can forgive your sins? The scribes get this answer right, okay? We can say, okay, let's take this from the scribes. Who can forgive sins? God. Only God can forgive sins. We do sin against other people. We all have sinned against other people. We've all been sinned against. But each and every time we sin, we sin against God. Ultimately, he is the one that every single one of us in this room are going to stand before one day and answer for the way that we live. And there is no wondering what the verdict is if it all falls on us, if it's based on our merit. Because God is perfect. He is perfectly just. Our sins demand punishment. We might not like that thought, but that's the truth. Our sins demand punishment. If God is perfectly just, just our sin can't just be swept under the rug a just god by very definition cannot turn a blind eye and so how does this math add up can our sins be forgiven yes who can forgive sins god our sin completely separates us from god so we need to ask that third important question how can my sins be forgiven well god sent his own son jesus into the world to be a substitute for sinners. And this is what we see unrolling as we study this book. Jesus is coming to restore God's kingdom. He does this as he's teaching. He does this in his miraculous deeds. But we see that ultimately, he's going to do that by giving up his own life as a substitute for sinners. Jesus died to be your substitute, and he rose victorious over death. He demonstrated that the debt has been paid, that your sins are taken care of, that if you would turn from your sin, you would turn from this rebellion and trust in him for salvation, 
that you and I can be confident that this is true because Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated death itself. He demonstrated his power and his victory over sin. It's evident and it's good news for you today. And the right response for all of us is to be amazed and to glorify God. Praise God for his amazing mercy. Just like the crowds looked around and said, we've never seen anything like this. We can stare in awe every moment of every day and each week as we gather to worship, this is exactly what we do. We fix our eyes, we behold God in all of his glory and we look honestly at ourselves and say, whoa, I don't deserve this. And then we stand in awe. We say, I've never seen anything like this, that he would save me. Have you thought about forgiveness recently? I mean, really thought about what it means to be forgiven. I hope you think differently today about how truly awesome genuine forgiveness is. There's no qualifiers. There's no, you know, terms and conditions. This is forgiveness. Certainly we're called to then live a life as Christ followers. But salvation is found in Christ alone and on his merit. And so as we close, I want you to think just about two more things as we read this well-known story about this paralytic being healed that might shape the way that we read this in a slightly different way. The first, and I can't say it better than J.C. Ryle, a pastor uh, from England in the 19th century. It's a longer quote, but listen to the profoundness of this thought. Who can doubt that to the end of his days, this man would thank God for his paralysis? Without it, he might probably have lived and died in ignorance and never seen Christ at all. Without it, he might have kept his sheep on the green hills of Galilee all his life long and never been brought to Christ and never heard these blessed words, thy sins are forgiven thee. That paralysis was indeed a blessing. Who can tell, but it was the beginning of eternal life to his soul. How many in every age can testify that this paralyzed man's experience has been their own? They have learned wisdom by affliction. Bereavements have proved mercies. Losses have proved real gains. Sicknesses have led them to the great physician of souls, sent them to the Bible, shut out the world, shown them in their foolishness, and taught them to pray. Thousands can say like David in Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn thy statutes, end quote. It's a beautiful mystery how the Lord can use affliction. Another 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. That takes a lot of maturity to say that and to believe that. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Friend, if you are here this morning and you are in a storm in your life, I know it can feel impossible for you to imagine how the waves that have crashed into you and keep crashing into you can be for good. You may not even have a glimmer of understanding in this moment. But one of the ways affliction is a gift is that it throws us up against the rock of Christ where our hope is found. 
It was the paralyzed man's affliction that was the impetus for him being lowered down to Jesus. Let's pray that we can learn each lesson that God is teaching us in every affliction. And let's remember, too, the joy of being forgiven. The joy of being forgiven. This man's body was restored, but again, the eternal healing in his heart that he experienced is of infinitely more value. And if you are a Christian, you know this. There is no guarantee that whatever affliction that is plaguing you right now will go away this side of eternity. Our bodies will grow weaker. The opposition against us may continue or even increase. Pain is an unfortunate reality of living in a fallen world. But we can rest that this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The pain in this life and the trials that you face, I know, feel neither light nor momentary. I know that you know that. And I know that some of you know that very acutely this morning. But friend, if you are in Christ, Jesus has said to you, daughter, son, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't make all your circumstantial problems go away. But it does make your biggest problem go away. And it's how you and I can say, even when the storm clouds and sea billows roll, that it's well with my soul. Your sin has been nailed to the cross. You bear it no more. It is well. It is well with my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed to think about the reality of forgiveness. How we, each, who don't deserve your forgiveness, receive it freely, completely on the merits of Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know this hope, Lord, work in their hearts to repent and believe, to have faith accompanied with action that comes to you. Lord, for each of us who know this truth, God, transform us by it. Help us not to settle for the status quo of our faith being some loose affiliation with religion. Lord, help our faith to be real, to be genuine, that we would be amazed and glorify you for what we know in our hearts and what we've seen together in your word. We've never seen anything like this, that you would forgive a sinner like me, a sinner like us. And so, Lord, as we eat and drink, remembering what Jesus did for us, help us to think long and hard about the hope that we have in our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.